I believe the root cause of addiction is trauma. And I believe that there's cures for trauma. And, and they're 3,000 years old. Today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Rex Elsass. Rex and I have recently gotten to know each other through a friend and have a lot of passions around mental health and uh, the different modalities that I think are out there and can really be helpful to people. He has an incredible story. He started his journey in politics in 1986 and from a very young age had the desire to be a congressman. And through that dream evolved into helping others win elections, which he's done successfully for decades. He, though, has shifted his work today to really focusing on um, the legalization, uh, the schedule specifically for uh, plant medicines, and through his own family tragedy, which you'll hear more about on the show, he is the founder and chairman of both the TSG Co. Board and the Reed Foundation, which are doing incredible work. I hope that uh, you'll take something away from Rex's story. There's a lot there to share that I think is really personal and I'm honored to have him tell his story on the Gravity Podcast. Enjoy. Rex, it's great to be with you. Thank you for taking some time to do this. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, we've just uh, started to get to know each other. Joel introduced yeah. us, and I know we have a lot in common, and I felt like your story, your journey is one that will be important for people to hear, and um, one that I'm certainly uh, excited to learn more about yeah. and get to know you even more so. So thanks again. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, anytime you have an opportunity to uh, share the things that you've grown and learned from that's forged who you've become or who you're becoming is uh, always worthwhile. And uh, to share a piece of your life with other people uh, hopefully helps them to uh, maybe not make the mistakes you have or mm -hmm. invest in some of the things that you have put your ladder up against the wrong house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I hope so. And sometimes I think you kind of can't shortcut it, but I do hope that's the case that, yeah. you know, people can learn from each other and take some comfort and walk away a little better off. So, Especially yeah. in the environment, Brett, that we live in and we find ourselves today where so much is, uh, uh, creates isolation, separation, comparison, all things that I think lead to uh, misery, mm -hmm. lead to that create fear. So those things often that we pursue very aggressively, or maybe spent decades pursuing, call them success. We find ourselves at the end of that line. Instead of feeling like we've obtained success, what we found is we've created separation. Mm -hmm. uh, when we desire unity to the greatest extent possible, mm -hmm. and uh, in the end, really are all the same. Yeah. And uh, we usually spend a lifetime proving that we're different, mm -hmm. or that we're special. And uh, actually, when we succeed, we find that it wasn't success at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, these are the things that I think in our world today that creates the, the very thing that I've really want to dedicate the rest of my life to. It's, mm -hmm. uh, helping people to identify and... Uh, 
solve trauma. And we uh, founded the Reed Foundation, Reaching Everybody in Distress, as a result of my son's death from uh, addiction. Mm. And uh, I know that I believe that there are things that that could be done that I wasn't aware of. And we went everywhere and found every place across the country that we thought uh, would make a difference when, in fact, you know, there are things that are natural and thousands of years old that are available but currently illegal mm-hmm. that are offering an awful lot of people hope yeah. right now. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I know how important of a, a part of your life and your journey, uh, certainly to the work that you're doing now, your, your son's death, you know, has played. And uh, I want to talk about that with you. Yeah. I do. I, I want to come back to it, though, because yeah, I'd like sure. to really understand you and your path to the work that you're doing today. And so maybe you could just back up a little bit for yeah. us and tell us a little bit about kind of you from a, yeah. from a early stage, you know, yeah. where you were raised and your sure. family dynamics. Yeah. And, and tell us yeah. about that part of your life. I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, not very far from here. I came to Columbus in the early 90s to work for uh, the Bush Quail campaign. And as a result, uh, became executive director of the High Republican Party for a period of time and started a business of my own that became a national advertising uh, business in American politics. And uh, we've worked in all 50 states. And But two years ago, when I became much more serious about what we're doing with the Reed Foundation, uh, I stepped down as the day-to-day CEO. And But there's still a vibrant company there. And and I view my job at the company is to lead the leaders and to let go and release and Mm -hmm. allow them to do greater things than Mm -hmm. perhaps I did. But I spent, you know, 25 years building a company that worked for many of the nation's leaders in the United States Senate and House and governors across the country. And uh, that became extraordinarily not only time-consuming, I literally thought that I had to wake up in the morning and put the sun up and, mm-hmm. and be ready to put the moon and the stars up at night. Mm-hmm. You turn around and a couple decades are, are past. I have loved that work. I certainly have loved telling people's stories and, mm-hmm. and uh, things that I feel strongly about. That business was really started more than uh, a sense of, gee, we're going to, you know, be successful in the traditional meaning financially, but because it, it was, I was always cause oriented. I always mm-hmm. believed that there's a greater purpose than yourself, mm-hmm. and that that's how you build a team and that's how you make a difference. Well, well tell me just kind of as a kid and, and your, your family, like, I, you know, I'm curious what, what led you? <laughs> I was never a kid. Okay. That was prob- probably part of the problem. Yeah. Cause, yeah, cause I'm curious I mean, from like, the time I was, uh, uh, I mean, since the time I could remember, 11 years old, yeah. uh, that's what I knew I wanted to do. Really? And well, tell me about that. What, yeah. what, what was it that you knew you <laughs> wanted to do? And I'm curious about this because it's fascinating to me when I hear that people at a, such a young age, yeah. you know, have these, these insights, you know, and, and I, I had it, you know, here and there too, but I didn't know that's what that was, you know? And so I'm curious 
you say at 11, you yeah. knew what you wanted to do. Well, like, what was that like? And what was it that you knew you I wanted mean, from, to do? From the time I could remember, as I said, 11 years old, knocking yeah. on doors for the Ward City Councilman in Mansfield and thinking that that was the pinnacle power. Were your parents in politics? No, no, no not at all. Actually, my, my dad worked at General Motors. My mother was a school teacher. My, uh, my brother was considerably older than I. He had, uh, He'd had a brain damage uh, when he was when he was born, so he was kind mm-hmm. of. I guess to some extent, you know, I, I had this sense that I needed to succeed for both of us, mm-hmm. and uh, that probably drove me to to a great extent later. Later in life, as he aged and got older, actually, I I became the guardian of him eventually, mm-hmm. and and it was you know with him in the last few years of his life, and also that also probably forged a little bit as the precursor to the many of the things that I'm talking about mm-hmm. in terms of. Uh, just understanding uh, real value, understanding that uh, love is really all that matters, mm-hmm. understanding that uh, we, every day we get to make a choice whether or not we're going to be driven by fear or driven by love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he ultimately was an incredible inspiration to me, too, in terms of just someone who uh, just had an incredible ability to have incredible empathy. Mm. Because things didn't have to make sense to him. Mm-hmm. For limited capacity, he he you know he worked for the city of Mansfield. He got married. He led a pretty normal life for a guy who probably the doctors didn't have that kind of expectation for him. Mm-hmm. But I think my mother willed him to be mm-hmm. m- more than maybe the world thought he could be. But mm-hmm. the reality is, who somebody is is what their heart says, mm-hmm. not what their head says. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in, in later in life, I got to see that uh, he led a very successful life yeah. because he was filled with love and passion and compassion. And, I mean, he was the kind of person, too, who if, if you weren't paying attention, there'd be homeless people living in his house yeah. because it wouldn't, didn't make sense to him that there were people yeah. who didn't have a place to go. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. So I don't know how I, I got on that well, you know, so early, but those were kind of the the years growing up. It, mm-hmm. it gave me a sense of uh, extra responsibility. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's a really important piece, and there's a lot we could talk about with yeah. the kind of measures of success and the things that make sense and why do they really make sense. Maybe they don't make sense. But I want to um, just kind of continue to come back to this part because I'm fascinated that you're – you know, you're going door to door, like in middle yeah. school, high school. You know, this is like a calling for you. It feels like well, that this, yeah, you were motivated yeah. by your brother, but you know, you, you this is a particular line of work that yeah. you chose. I, I uh, uh, attempted to, to graduate early so I could work in this, a page in the state senate mm-hmm. and drive back to Mansfield and work in the mayor's office. Mm. I ran for the state legislature at an unbelievable age of 18. Mm. And we actually won a competitive primary and uh, lost, the, lost the general election and then ran again in 1986, which was the year I graduated from college and lost by three votes. Wow. And uh, had I not lost by three votes, I guess I wouldn't have founded and built what became probably in our space the largest political advertising agency in America. Wow. Amazing. So you started that business at what age? Well, I started that business after uh, in 1994. Okay. So I had been executive director of the Higher Republican Party. I'd managed a governor's race in Alabama. Okay. I struggled through other uh, early lessons and tragedies uh, sure. as well. And uh, 
you know, I probably started a business because I couldn't find a job yeah. that, well, I could only find jobs that reported other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. 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 You, you became unemployable yeah, once you start your so business. I, I that happened no to choice, me too. But uh, when you don't know what you can't do, I guess you can. Yeah. And, uh, you saw an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you just My, saw that you were working with people that were doing it. Yeah. You, I'm guessing you thought you could do it better. Well, it's funny. I, you know, I always thought that my life would be, I'd get elected eventually to Congress and that would be my life. And as, but instead, uh, I've elected more than 100 people to Congress across the country. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually gotten to live that dream that many people have more than 100 times over. Uh, instead of just experiencing it once. Sure. My degree is in radio, television production. And so I was able to, I worked with, in 1990, uh, which was uh, Roger Ailes last year in the political business before Mm -hmm. they founded Fox TV. Mm -hmm. He uh, was the uh, lead consultant for George Voinovich, who was running for governor at the time, and and ultimately the entire Republican ticket every constitutional office. People now look at Ohio and say it's a red state. Mm -hmm. You know, when you really look at history, the truth is, had uh, Bob Taft, who became governor after George Voinovich, not dropped to the Secretary of State's office, and had George Herbert Walker Bush and Lee Atwater, who was chairman of the Republican National Committee, and Bob Bennett, who was chairman of the High Republican Party, and and I was uh, the director, had all those things not happened, actually, we wouldn't have controlled the apportionment board at that point that has led to the perpetuation of the Republican Party in the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. So at the time when, just to put things in perspective, the Republican Party was a million dollars in debt. We uh, didn't control the uh, House, state House or the state Senate, didn't have a majority of the congressional delegation, didn't have a majority of the Supreme Court, essentially had nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so really that was uh, a very significant turnaround for the state that since then, the Republican Party has controlled the apportionment board, which draws the state legislative districts, which draws the Mm -hmm. congressional districts. So the truth is that uh, the red state sense in Ohio really was earned Mm -hmm. and built and uh, didn't happen by accident. And Mm -hmm. probably we would be much more of a competitive state if that not been the case, Mm -hmm. because success builds success. And when you have success, you raise money yeah. and then you continue to outspend the opposition and you control the process. And so really, this is a state uh, that it really, really look at it is uh, there's a labor state. Uh, there's significant poor rural areas. This has the potential to be extraordinarily competitive. But, you know, there's only two times in my lifetime that I can remember, really, that I believe that there was a true realignment in 1980 with Ronald Reagan, uh, where... You know, Reagan, it was called Reagan Democrats. And then actually in 2016, mm-hmm. which was different, but the realignment when mm-hmm. Donald Trump was elected. And uh, frankly, most of those people were Democrat voters who became re- sure. behaviorally Republicans. Well, so- well, let me ask you about that, because, uh, you know, I have voted Republican and Democrat throughout my life. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I think, you know, in the... Oh, don't be honest. That would be boring. <laughs> I don't intend to be. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I may be, uh, you know, being honest with myself as I say this, but, you know, I think that I, when I was younger, you know, in 18, 22, voting in, you know, my first elections, uh, presidential elections, I'm not sure exactly what I was really basing my decisions on. You know, maybe it was 
uh, family or maybe it was, you know, the media or maybe it was friends, right? I, I was I was probably not consciously aware of what it is I believed. And, and then, you know, voting for people that I felt were in alignment with my beliefs. Now, I mean, I, there were some issues that I felt, you know, that I... I knew what I was voting on, and and those maybe ultimately were the deciding factors. But I voted both Republican and Democrat, and I really kind of fancied myself as I got older as an independent. And in recent years, I've shifted and really feel more aligned with the Democratic Party. And and yet, when we fast forward and talk about some of the subjects that you were mentioning earlier, you know, about we're all the same and love and the things that really matter and maybe kind of the way that we look at the homeless and, and right. I guess I'm, you know, still pretty passionate about the fact that the biggest problem we have is that we don't listen to each other and we're not curious enough and we're not trying to find the middle ground and come together. And, you know, I believe that's, what is it's going to take and it might you know ultimately get worse before it gets better and maybe i'm naive and it's wishful thinking and it's never going to happen and that's certainly possible but i guess i want to be curious with you and and really understand what it was at the early ages that had you identifying or interested in the republican party yeah well first of all let me uh challenge you a little bit. When you say you're an independent, let me tell you what that means in the state of Ohio. That means you don't participate yeah, in, right, in, you can't. in primaries. Right. So, Which is part of the reason why I chose yeah. to but pick I can a party. T- I can tell you that uh, 90% be, uh, based on apportionment and redistricting, and the reality is that 90% of the state legislative districts or congressional districts across this country are drawn for one party to hold them or another. So the primary election is you know, totally dictates who's going to get elected in the general election. So, you know, you need to participate in the primary process or, frankly, your vote is irrelevant in the general election, at least legislatively or in congressional races and state legislative races, which is going to dominantly affect the policy. And person who's a congressman from Georgia for 30 years, uh, it it will have more impact unbeknownst to you uh, and more power is they become increased in seniority, influence in Washington, and become the chairman of a committee. So, uh, so someone who calls themselves an independent, doesn't go vote in the primary, isn't participating in, in the election of that person who is nearly anonymous nationally, who is actually affecting public policy mm-hmm. tremendously. So there is no such thing as an independent. There's, you know, yeah. That's someone who chooses not to participate in the primary based on... Uh, voter registration laws in the state of Ohio. But what you're talking about is general ideology or, mm-hmm. or philosophy, which is what people tend to mean when they talk about being independent-minded. Sure. Hopefully, I guess I've evolved somewhat on this as well in that, you know, it was all about winning. And mm-hmm. this is our side and this is their side. And mm-hmm. it's a holy war. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after a couple decades of that, you realize, you know, that's what, that's what's created what we have, mm-hmm. uh, which is, it used to be on, I used to say people like me didn't belong in government, mm-hmm. meaning we're campaign warriors. Mm-hmm. And there used to be an environment where 
Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would sit down or the last time the budget was balanced actually was Bill Clinton was president and John Kasich was budget chairman mm -hmm. and Newt Gingrich was speaker of the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the first time since man had walked on the moon that we had actually balanced the, the mm -hmm. federal budget. It happened one time in our lifetime. I know. Yeah. And, and so, but that was a day which there was a spirit of bipartisan, there was an understanding that on inauguration day, governing began and the campaign was over. Mm -hmm. People like me were focused then on the next election. And, uh, you know, you have to say in 2016, after Trump was elected for the first time in history, there was three weeks later from an inauguration, a campaign rally. That would have been unheard of because that was a time to build a unity in government. That was a time to bring people together to solve problems. And we continued, uh, I think, for the first time at that level to continue the openship mm -hmm. and focused separation mm -hmm. and continued essentially running a campaign. So that significantly changed things. Also, as I alluded to a little earlier, uh, that was also an election where there was a realignment, meaning people who dominantly were Democrat yeah. voted Republican. Sure. And, uh, and so it changed the dynamics phenomenally. So, yeah. uh, you know, just as you look at some of the history, significant things changed in terms of our attitude, approach, yeah. and belief that there was a period of a honeymoon period where we actually looked for commonality yeah. or compromise. Right. And I, I think that radically has changed and yeah. that changed in 2016. Yeah. 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 In, in my opinion. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. I, I see that, you know, happen and seems to be getting worse, you know, not better. But Brett, it really ties back to the subject, the other subject that we really haven't gotten to. But the reality is, as an individual, we don't really make changes until we suffer. Yeah. And I think as a society, we don't develop thirst to bring change or develop a consciousness mm -hmm. that brings about a, a true change. So I think the misery mm -hmm. that's being experienced is for a greater purpose, mm -hmm. just as it is true in our individual lives. And mm -hmm. so I, I really believe that the kind of confrontation that we've had, is, it's unprecedented. Yeah. It perhaps had, has to happen or had to happen for us to say, hey, there's going to be, there is going to be a change because misery can't continue and it has to be experienced enough to demand and dictate a change. Yeah, I, I believe that too. And I've listened to uh, Charles Eisenstein and others talk about the more beautiful world, our heart desires and, you know, the pain and suffering that maybe is leading us to a new world. And I like and I believe that. I really do. Yeah. I also am a pretty privileged, you know, white guy who has kind of everything I need and worry sometimes that this, the true suffering, you know, beyond my comprehension. But as a society, I do believe that and hope that's true. And I want to come back to something you said about how you've evolved in your thinking. And I'm curious really about kind of the part of your life that was leading to the evolution. You mentioned that for decades, we're in this role and the sun and the star and the moons. And I get what you mean, especially uh, in the world of politics. Yeah. Big or decisions are being made. In any business, but you know, in your case, you know, you're really 
striving, working hard, and actually making a difference in who is elected, who's making policy, who's running the country, who's impacting millions of lives, right? So I get the feeling of that and the reality of that. And what I'm curious about is the part where you kind of wake up and realize a couple of decades have gone by and or tell me about the, the evolution. Well, I, you know, that has, I think, more to do with uh, your individuality mm-hmm. and, and a change of heart mm-hmm. in terms of what do I really want to spend my sweat and energy and passion on? And when you see that also coincides with experiencing the greatest pain mm-hmm. that one could experience yeah. in uh, your son dying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the reality is that uh, there are uh, 100,000 people that are going to commit suicide this year. There are 100,000 people who are going to die of addiction. There are 25 people a day who are going to uh, commit suicide from PTSD who have been veterans. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly have to think, what really matters? Yeah. What will, what will say, uh, what will happen that really makes your life make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've spent decades getting to know public policy makers and help them succeed. I'm now going to see those same people uh, and having different conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm able to go see them and talk about things like emerging therapies mm-hmm. that I believe uh, the root cause of addiction is trauma. Mm-hmm. And I believe that there's cures for trauma and, and they're 3000 years old and it's I'm watching uh, an organization called Vet Solutions that's sending people, 30 people a week. They raise money to send 30 people a week for ibogaine treatments Mm. uh, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And they come back universally healed from from the deepest PTSD Mm -hmm. from having served our country. Yeah. And... uh, The same things are also available for other people who have trauma that's the root cause of addiction. Mm -hmm. In this country, for 50 years or more, we have basically, because of Richard Nixon's desire to get even with the war protesters and uh, two uh, research professors at uh, Harvard, uh, that we essentially make these things, ibogaine, ayahuasca, other things, Mm -hmm. schedule one drugs, and Mm -hmm. as a result, uh, ended the research mm-hmm. that could that could be the healing of the most important crisis in our country. Yeah, I, I, and I want to talk uh, all about that. I yeah. do because I I think you and I have shared beliefs and maybe believe the exact same things yeah. about trauma and addiction and these medicines and the healing power. We talked about this a little bit before. It, it can be dangerous. It can. It needs to be, and I and I know this is why you are doing what you're doing, but I do believe it can lead to the kind of new world that we're talking yeah. about. But but I I want to come back to that. Well, let me stop you. For sure. One let me tell you why it can be dangerous, because it's Schedule One drug, and we have eliminated real research. The only research that really is taking place at a significant level is entrepreneurial assisted research. There is very limited ability for NIH and for real government funding of research because of the hate of one man. And Bob Holderman, who was 
chief of staff to Nixon at the time said, we know these things aren't schedule one. To be schedule one, you have to have, it has to have absolutely no medical value and it has to, it has to be addictive. Well, ayahuasca will make you throw up and potentially give you diarrhea. There's nothing addictive about that, but it, it allows for the mind and body and soul to be purged. You know, when people say they put things behind them, they have actually stuffed them in. Yeah. That's actually the cause of trauma. Right. And so until the schedules change and what we're doing at the Reed Foundation, one of the principal things we're doing with our uh, team in Washington is to, I've met with 40, 50 members of Congress in the last six months talking about the importance of these things truly being medical research, that, that the scheduling be changed so that research can be done. It's dangerous because there hasn't been, there should be billions of dollars spent to solve the problem of trauma, anxiety, depression, PTSD. Yeah. As it stands, until that happens, that's what I'm going to pers- That's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Yeah, is to see that change. Well, yeah, and yeah, we can just kind of flush this out. And, <laughs> and I want to, I want to come back and talk yeah. a little bit about your son and that experience as much as you're comfortable. Yeah, because I think it's pretty transparent. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Point life. Well, I'm sure it's hard, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I think it's important. But I will just say that, or ask you, don't you think that the reason why there is so much resistance to what you're trying to do with the schedules and the legalization for the research. I mean, which is which is an important point I want you to clarify. I mean, right? right. We're trying to get the money to be able to be spent so that the research can be done. Correct. So that then the medicines can be used in a way that will be held in, at the highest standard. But don't you think the reason why the resistance is such is directly related to the trauma of the individuals that are involved in making these yeah, decisions? Of yeah. But also, you have to understand having spent a, a lifetime in the political business, politicians are the great followers, they're not the great leaders. And why is and, that? Well, it's because they want to get elected. Right, but, so but, they, but why are they yeah. so interested? Well, it's, it's because they're operating from fear. It's, right. it's what I said from the beginning. Right. We have a choice. Either right. we make decisions from love or we make decisions from fear. And when you make decisions from fear based on what you think is most popular or what you think the lo- lowest common denominator is that most people believe in right. or what you can make people believe, and you get separated from the truth and you uh, no longer become the chief advocate for the greatest good. I guess what I'm kind of drilling down on, I agree with you, it's fear. And so then you think, well, why are they so afraid? Don't you think it's about this like societal conditioning or this conditioning that happens at childhood, which really is a a trauma. And and if you don't want to believe or call it a trauma, I'm not saying you, people, we have what's now a generational conditioning that is fear-based. It's us versus them. It, it's yeah. pervasive in, in, in our leadership. I don't know the people that you're talking to in Congress, but it almost seems like if they could or have uh, worked with these medicines, yeah. then maybe there could be some massive change. Yeah. And maybe well, some of them are. I think there's continually a greater awareness because there is a greater obvious need 
because there's increased misery. It goes back to what we talked about. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we need to experience collective misery to wake up. Sure. And I think all those things are contributing. I mean, the reality is, is people have trauma because they were also raised by people who had trauma. Correct. And it's generational. Correct. And, uh, you know, I, I happen to believe God knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so there's, I a, tend to agree there's a creator you. above and beyond all else. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you can't forget that part. And, and when you, <laughs> when you do these medicines, you learn that yeah. and, and you learn it in a way that's beyond just this like idea. It's a, yeah. it's a, an embodied experience and you yet can forget, right? Cause yeah. you get into this, like, well, we got to get this and that and done and it's all part of it. And I guess to that point, Let's let's circle back. You talked about how this is the work of your life. Yeah. And how the suffering and the tragedy, you know, might be necessary, the misery to get to. And yet, you know, you would never wish or ask for the kind of no. suffering and misery you yeah. experienced. And, and I really commend you for seeing it, finding some purpose coming out of it. Yeah but I don't want to skip over the pain and yeah. the suffering. And- well, Brett, each of us are here for a reason that's greater than ourselves. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily write the path that you would. I, my firstborn son, who never lost his personality, his love, even through all of the difficulty that he'd walked. And uh, you learn about addiction and you learn through traditional ways and you learn about the healings and I'd spent over a million dollars at the finest rehabs in across America. And the reality is, is there's not a rehab in, in this country that has better than 4% recovery rate. And uh, so after years of being in Asheville, North Carolina and Prescott, Arizona and Huntington Beach, California, and I can keep naming them, I said, I, I got to find something else. There has to be something else. And uh, I ended up 10 years ago. Uh, with, with Reed and a friend of his uh, in Peru. And, you know, ironically, I'd gone through a very difficult time in my life in business, actually, that I'd had a betrayal beyond any explanation that created PTSD. Basically, for, you know, a long while, I didn't even want to go to an office I owned. And all this happened at the same time. And I went with Reed to heal him. And I was healed from PTSD from the experience. Mm. So not only did I see something that offered him renewed life, and I believe his life was extended at least for five years as a result, but I too had uh, a transformational change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, it taught me that there's hope, that the stories we tell ourselves aren't our reality mm-hmm. unless we allow them to be our reality. Mm-hmm. That there, there is a, a God who's given you a purpose mm. and that your passion and your drive is so much more important than the way the world, you know, maybe uh, rates its success. And so really that kind of personal experience, both in terms of how it affected him and how it affected me in terms of a realignment of, of, of mind, body, and spirit it gave me a, an understanding that I wouldn't have had any other way. Mm-hmm. So had he not walked the path he had, 
I would not have walked the path I had. And then I, I have to say that every significant trans, you know, I've had the privilege of being able to to do that, to, to go to Peru and Ecuador and mm-hmm. uh, Costa Rica, other places that have, uh, you know, where you can legally seek this kind of help. And uh, every transformational stage in my life uh, really has been, you know, with the help of these medicines. Yeah. And uh, from one experience uh, with ayahuasca, I, I, you know, I walked away and uh, never drank again. Mm-hmm. It's been over two and a half years. I would never have said I was an alcoholic. But the truth is, uh, uh, I was killing pain and trauma mm-hmm. with the acceptable way in society that mm-hmm. we can do it yeah. collectively and call it fun, right. say cheers. But the truth is that alcohol stays in your system 27 days. A lot of people have, have that wine on Friday. And uh, really what it's doing is uh, it's, not, it's not really causing you to be relaxed. It's, it's really preventing, it's allowing it to stay in your system. Yeah. So you're not having relapse. Right. There are a lot of things that you will not face uh, that you'll choose to stuff in, mm-hmm. hide, that uh, this really allows your your spirit to open up and to a, a level of new awakening. Yeah. And and I appreciate you sharing all of that. And, you know, you mentioned this extension of your son's life that, you know, you believe his experience in Peru extended his life. You know, what I'm thinking is the importance, and again, we were talking about this before, of people realizing that these medicines are not cure-alls. They're not silver bullets. It's a... Well, especially not when they're not researched appropriately. Right. And we haven't done, you know, uh, an iota of what we can do. So right. it's like, I hear what you're saying and I agree with what you're saying, but we don't know because we have incredible ability to work through many of those things. And basically the American government has said, we're not going to do that. Right. And, uh, and so the, the truth is, I, I think if we really were serious about it and things were changing in the schedule and we really had billions of dollars of, 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 of government resources being spent mm-hmm. on true research, we wouldn't be at the margin talking about, yeah. you know, gee, uh, this isn't the answer all. Right? I don't know that it isn't. Well, and the reason I don't know is because we haven't tried. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, uh, no, I, I actually, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think you're making a good point because, because I don't know that they're not either, but in the way that they are available now without yeah. the research, without the proper facilitation, you know, I, I'm really passionate about making sure that when I say that I believe these medicines could be the cure-all for society, that people also don't run out and, you know, do a bunch of mushrooms with a friend on a Saturday and think that they're going to, you know. That's not what we're talking about. If if we actually had real true government research, if we had the schedule change and NIH were spending billions of dollars a year doing legitimate research, we wouldn't have people uh, who are desperate for help illegally providing uh, help to people who feel like they have no help. We can do something about it. And we're not as a society. So as a result, kind of what's happening is what you're describing. Mm -hmm. I guess in my world, (laughs) the world that I I see is that 
God's natural healing in plant medicines are commonly available at with all the uh, scientific abilities and medical research uh, that we have that that healing can be provided safe and appropriate and it's not just an experience it's healing, i see yeah. a different world i guess i don't see the world as it is i see the world as it can be i got you and so i understand you know you're having to look at it in the context of the reality that we live in. I don't choose to live in reality. Yeah. I choose to live uh, in what I believe will be. Thousands of years ago in the indigenous communities, there weren't th such things as addiction. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is, Brett? Yeah, why do you think that is? There also wasn't <laughs> such a thing as legislation and policy and lobbying and all the yeah. you know crap that you know we have to go through just to get back to... Well, it's, yeah, it's man uh, controlling people creating his own world. Yeah. And uh, perhaps all of this is the beginning of the phase of, of a new world. Yeah. And a new reality. I agree with you. And I, and I you know, I like the world that you're living in. I do. And <laughs> Come I, join me. <laughs> I, well, I, 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 no, I, I actually, I live there too. Yeah. I, I tend to you know, keep one foot in both. And I'm, that's not something that I am, you know, kind of bragging about. It's just where I'm at. Yeah. And because I am in the world where we are today, you know, in part, I see and hear a lot of things that scare me. What I do with that is want to be with people like you who are doing the work that you're doing yeah. so that we can change that reality. You know, but I can't not talk about yeah. it because I worry of course that that people yeah. are going to yeah. experience unnecessary yeah. pain and suffering because Absolutely. they're not doing things in the proper way. I agree. And you know, in, interestingly enough, I, I also live in both worlds. I have one foot in both worlds. I mean, that's why at the Reed Foundation here in Ohio, well, while these th we're focused on these things in Washington in terms of those policy changes here in Ohio, we're in Two state prisons. We just had conversations with Ohio State University yesterday with their rehab folks, rehabs across the state doing music therapy. We had a concert last June that we had a thousand people at, a community concert that we put on to talk about the healing nature of music therapy. Mm -hmm. We've hired uh, music therapists that, that also are dealing with trauma with people mm -hmm. who currently are struggling with addiction and other issues mm -hmm. in Ohio. That uh, that every week, on behalf of the Reed Foundation, uh, we have music therapists somewhere, you know, working with people who are also dealing with trauma and see the power of music. Mm. So, I mean, the point is, is we are doing things that we can do legally now. Yeah, we're also advocating for things that aren't legal that should be. Yeah, I I think that's great. I I'm actually curious to learn more about that because part of the reason why. I say they're not, you know, a cure-all silver bullet is because I do believe that sometimes you have to meet people where they are. Yeah. It's a process. Sometimes it How takes... How many people have to die before we do something? Well, I, I guess the question is, are there a lot of things that can be done? Meaning, even if you... I'll just speak from my experience. Yeah. You know, taking medicine by itself has not been 
the most important part of my healing. Yeah. It has been a massive part of my healing, but without the other modalities, you know, without things like oh, music, of course. And nature, Absolutely. and therapy, right? Collectively, there's but ha- a lot. Hasn't, hasn't that medicine made more powerful and made you aware of the importance yes. of nature? Yes. I mean, it's yes. all tied together. It is. It is. It yeah. is. But that's why I, I just was curious about you know, the music aspect of what yeah, you're doing, because absolutely. there are things like music and other things that, you know, really do make a difference yeah. in people's healing. Well, I'll be honest to say, I mean, that, you know, Reed was very passionate about music. Uh, that was such a central part of his life that brought him so much joy. Honestly, mm-hmm. his brothers uh, have felt much more strongly and are much more excited about what we're doing in music therapy than mm-hmm. some of these other things that mm-hmm. I feel like also need to change from a public policy point of view. But in a practical way, I, two weeks ago, at a facility in Knox County, what a beautiful thing. I got to go watch the music therapist that we've hired from the Central Ohio Music Therapy, literally bringing people to life. We did a, a rehab right here across the street, actually. We had a 10-day program mm-hmm. last year where in 10 days, people who literally went from just with music and art therapy who went from like going through the motion to coming to life. Yeah. And we saw the difference. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're trying to do that here at gravity and it's not necessarily with addicts specifically, but it's just with human beings, you know, give them access to art and music and other healing modalities that, that just improve their life. I believe that that, sometimes can be a step quality of life, increasing the quality of life yeah bringing people together yeah. creating a unity yeah. having shared interests yeah the basic simple reality of who we are as humanity yeah when are we when we're engaged with other people and we're creating you know when we are imitating our creator by creating mm-hmm. by being a co-creator with the creator Amen. is when we become who we were created to be. Correct. Now. Who you were born who yeah. you were born as. And that's how you that's how you also eliminate trauma. So yeah, perhaps get more excited and talk about these other things because yeah. they have been ignored. Yeah. Because our society basically said we're gonna punish bad. people and yeah. we're not gonna even we're not even gonna look at this. Drugs, these bad. So we we can do all these other things and we need to and we have to and we're, yeah. we have to be responsible. We have to abide by the laws. We have to encourage people to get the help. But I also, I, I want them to know what can be, but also I, I want to be a part of what we can do right now. And that's yeah. why, that's why in a practical sense here in Ohio, we are, we are doing those things. Yeah. T- tell me, I, you know, I listen, I totally agree with you <laughs> that, you know, you're, you, you do what you can do now and the big change is going to occur, you know, when we do this right with the medicine. Talk a little bit about, where you are in the process. You, you mentioned meeting with all the legislators. The the focus is on changing the schedule. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's talk at the federal about, level. Yeah. Because that has to be changed at the federal level. There are things happening in various states mm-hmm. uh, on this. And there are, and I, I, at the Reed Foundation, I view all of these organizations as they see each other somewhat as competitors and they have a different philosophy. The decrim folks and versus people who are looking more at MDMA. And, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, there are 
ketamine clinics uh, mm-hmm. that are legal in various states that have had great success. But instead of getting involved in that argument on the state-to-state level, I prefer to have been focused because I've spent my lifetime getting to know people, electing people. And so I've been spending more time in, in Washington as it relates to the federal change to bring more uniformity to real research that can go on at the great research centers across this country. There's then there already has been, you know, Johns mm-hmm. Hopkins is doing a lot. Mm-hmm. We actually have, I think have a very encouraging uh, professor here in Allen Davis at yeah. Ohio State University that's doing some beautiful work on understanding how to deal with PTSD and, mm-hmm. and, and veterans. But but what, what I want to see is that at, at, at a level that's a hundred times what yeah. we're looking at right now. And just to kind of play that out a little bit, I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the decrim efforts and the state efforts and, you know, your focus on the federal level and getting this uniform. What, if you were to, you know, look into the future where we are living in the world that you and I have one foot in, yeah. What's the path? I mean, what kind of timeline do you think this oh, is? I, I, and, I, think, yeah, I think a, a lot's going to happen very on quick, short order. I know that uh, in the new Congress, there's actually going to be a psychedelic caucus in the U.S. House, mm-hmm. which I believe 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats will join together to begin serious conversation. I think that'll be an incubator where things can happen. I would like to see greater education on, on these in the general public that's uh, beyond just little pockets that have gained information. And once you're involved in an issue, you think it's really taking off because you become absorbed in that little corner sure. of people talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, and- but, but I do think you're right. <laughs> I think there's a lot happening. And, you know, we've seen kind of the tides turn, but it does feel like, you know, we're getting to a point where real progress can be made. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to commend you for what you're doing. Thank you. And uh, we'll make sure that people find uh, how to connect with the Reed Foundation. Thank you. But I believe that the short order and the progress is really happening largely in part because of initiatives like yours, people really educating and lobbying. And what I love, and it's becoming my personal passion and becoming more and more of my work. And I think what I'll spend some part of my time doing for the rest of my life is seeing how our lives in that divine architecture that's so perfect really makes so much sense to lead us to service of, of others and each other. And that's what I hear when I hear your life. You, You at 11 years old are drawn into this political world and you knew it. And you go through all the iterations of that. But today, you use all of it in the, in the service of humanity in the most unexpected way. Yeah. And that is so beautiful. That right, goes to what we said earlier. God knows what he's doing yeah. with each of us. Yeah. Every one of us has a critical mission that we're here for. Yeah. And uh, maybe we don't even recognize it when it's happening. Right. The individual life that we've touched we're each here for a purpose. Yeah. And when we see that in one another, when we begin to see God in the one before us, we no longer are looking for separation and division and comparison. Mm-hmm. We're looking for unity, compassion. We're looking for the good things, joy. And yeah, the love. rest is a lie. Yeah. It leads to misery. 
Mm. And so uh, true. It's, it's so simple, you yeah. know, and it's so uh, complex. But well, thank you for being the the asset that you've chosen to invest your time and energy to just creating conversations mm. that lead to unity and optimism. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let me just ask you one last question, and I'll give you a chance to you know share some final thoughts. Although you just said some beautiful things, you know when you talk about this this calling, this purpose, you know, discovering why we're here. I'm thinking about the importance of surrendering. You know, you say you don't always know it when you're going on, when it's going on and you kind of tapping into that calling at an early age. I have been in resistance throughout my life along the way to what maybe felt like it was a part of that calling and have surrendered to it, you know, more and more as time has gone on. Maybe you could just share some wisdom on the importance of being able to recognize it and surrendering to it. Yeah, you know, I think surrendering happens after you've fought a great battle. Yeah. And so release Mm -hmm. and let go Mm -hmm. is the hardest thing to do Mm -hmm. because it's counterintuitive. And But the reality is, is that's where joy is found. Yeah, and so uh, you can you, you have to walk through the tough road. Yeah, get your feet bloody, I guess, yeah. to find out that at the end of the day, it's really a better life mm. when you're focused on something that's greater than yourself. Yeah, and I I don't know how much of this will be seen visually, but being with you here today, I have seen the emotion. And the tears and the feelings of of the pain. And I've also seen you smile when you talk about what you just said. And so it's it's a full life. Yeah. But you know, that pain still can be felt and ultimately you can smile again. Yeah. I just give you so much Thank you. Uh, Thank you, you know, I just have a lot of respect and, and admiration for how you've moved through the pain and, you know, have found the smiles in the service. And yeah. God bless you. I think we're all here together for, uh, for that greater purpose. And as I said, when we see God in each other, we realize each of us are the same and have, have that higher purpose and ultimate purpose and eternal purpose. Yeah. Amen. We'll leave it there. Thanks, uh, Rex. It's been great. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.